my journey um, towards creating and making a way of life was quite an interesting one in many ways. I was actually at BAFTA and I was introduced to um, Peter Edwards, who at the time was head of drama for HTV Wales, which sub subsequently became ITV Wales. And um, I was very interested in his role at ITV because I found out that some of the oldest black communities in Europe um, ha had lived in, in Cardiff and around Cardiff. And I wondered what that meant for the kind of programming they were making. Um, and I think I kind of set a spark in Peter's mind um, because about six weeks later he called me and said, you know, I, I was kind of struck by our question and I, I would love to um, talk to you about creating something for us. And we did meet and we sat down and we chatted and um, we talked about a spate of crimes that seemed to be occurring at the time which were committed by um, male gangs but led by a single female you know, gang leader. And that was seemed quite fascinating. And at the time, whenever you read about them in the paper, it was a sort of very sensational headline. But we were very interested in what was going on behind those headlines, what, what might have been creating this perceived um, phenomena and, and um, what did it all mean. And we were also talking about this idea of racism and what racism is, what is the nature of racism. And we started talking about the idea of it being a symptom, the possibility of it being a symptom rather than simply um, the sort of a cause, if you like, which sort of led me to st sort of doing lots of research and not just in Wales, but across the board. We started looking into communities that seemingly were excluded, but also where racism was rearing its ugly head and looking at whether there was any kind of connection sometimes. And it was then that we sort of came up with the, the, the thought of really working on a piece of work that looked at racism as a symptom, really looked at class and gender, um, within the context of a, a young woman's world, um, presenting a woman as, as a lead in the story, but really looking at some social political questions that seemed really relevant for me at the time. In terms of creating a real sense of world, if you like, for um, a way of life, for me it's really important that it always starts with a script. First and foremost, what I had to do was just go back and research like crazy. I went back to sort of uh, the 30s, 40s, 50s in um, Wales to kind of find out what the, again, the social political backdrop was throughout all of those years and how we might have come to a place where certain communities, not just in Wales, but because we were setting the film in Wales, it was important, how certain communities might have evolved. And of course, in doing so, I, I was coming across um, a set of communities that really once had community um, once had libraries where neighbours knew each other, um, but suddenly where work um, and unemployment was um, multi-generational, so children had not ever known their parents to actually have work. And so for me, I didn't want to present that world in a vacuum, I wanted to present a world which sort of sort of gave a nod to the fact that at some point these, these communities were functioning, but something had gone wrong within our society, for which we're all culpable for, um, that had meant that they had become disconnected from the rest of the world. Like I say, libraries had gone, employment had gone, um, uh, the, the sense of community had gone once a sense of world, if you like, had been taken from them. And so it was, how do you create a world um, that once had a really functioning community, but now that community had been taken out. So it started with the research, 
Um, and that then went on to making sure that I, I built, built detail into the script. I remember my producer saying to me that it's in the, the detail that you will find the universal. If you try to create a kind of universal story that everybody can understand and connect with, you end up creating this kind of wishy-washy sense of nothingness. But if you really focus on the real detail of a very specific character's world, that's when you'll find that that world will resonate with people you know, around the world. And I do remember taking the film um, to Argentina and thinking, oh gosh, I wonder if, you know, how they'll connect to this film. And of course, I had a big queue at the end after the Q&A of people just lining up to saying, I, I re recognise these characters, I recognise this world, I grew up in a world very similar to this. Um, and then it was about, you know, really having a really good location manager who really was able to interpret what I wanted from the script and from conversations with me and making sure that we, we literally wreckied all of South Wales to find the kind of streets that we wanted because I wanted um, a sense of beauty to represent the fact, as I say, that these communities were once working and functioning and could be so again in many ways. So I didn't just want, you know, a kind of sad looking street somewhere in South Wales. A street we actually chose um, had um, Portalbert docks at one end of it and a huge, gorgeous mountain at the other end of it. It was kind of set on the steep of a hill. And it was, to me, it was really, really beautiful. And I wanted to kind of explore that idea that sometimes horrible things happen in beautiful places and sometimes beautiful things happen in not so, not so beautiful places, but that's life. Um, and what I was really looking for was an authenticity to the character of Leanne's life um, within the context of this story. So it was about layering it across the board, locations, music, you know, by having David Gray, who really speaks, um, I think, to the sense of the world, his voice for me. I wrote the script listening to David Gray's White Ladder. And so when it was time to sort of bring someone on board to do the music, I wrote to him and said, if I can't have you, I'm not having anyone. Um, and I was just very lucky that he said yes. Originally, my background was that I had written stuff and I had produced the work that I'd written for television, but I'd never directed before. And so when I started writing A Way of Life, the idea was that I would co-produce it with Peter Edwards at HTV Wales um, and that we would find a director. And we did start searching for a director. and We started meeting people. And then one day, um, the UK Film Council, as they were then, today the BFI Film Fund, um, called me in and said, look, you know, we, we know that you want to look for a director for this but we really think that the right thing would be for you to direct it because you know the world so well you know the material so well and you're so clear on the story that you want to tell that it really makes sense to us that you should be the person to direct it and I just remember thinking oh my word I love this script you know I've put my heart and soul into this script I do not want to be the person who ruins it by believing um, that I could do something I haven't done before which is to direct it and so initially I actually said no, and, um, but uh, luckily they were persistent in their belief for me, as was my agent, Sarah Stroud, who um, sadly passed away um, not long after I made the film. But um, between them, they persisted in really trying to encourage me to, to have the guts and have the courage to move forward with this. And, and so what I shot initially was a pilot. Um, it was a couple of scenes um, with a full crew, um, and I think that was the moment where I really 
understood that this was what I was meant to do. I was terrified for the two nights leading up to it and obviously even before that but the terror really got to an uncontrollable <laughs> extent at that point and um, I remember thinking I'm just going to freeze, I'm not going to be able to do this but actually what happened was I really came to life because it felt like home and it felt like I was doing, it felt like I was where I belonged um, and, and it all sort of made sense to me and so that really was the launch of my directing career. Um, Stephanie James who plays Leanne Williams carries the entire film, she is in almost every single scene of the film and um, it was a real process searching for her. Um, the late Gary Howe, casting director, um, worked extensively with me and, and, and actually did a lot of the groundwork, I mean he went to every single um, sort of drama school, evening class, you name it, and just really looked very, very hard for um, children or teenagers to play each of the, the, the five sort of significant characters that you see in the movie. Um, I think in the end, together, we possibly went through about 2,000 children in our search um, within South Wales to, to try and find um, the right Leanne and, and Gavin, who played, uh, you know, who was her brother, and the rest of the gang. And then one day I just remember uh, going to this um, drama class one Saturday morning and walking up and down lines of, you know, wonderful and vibrant children who had never professionally acted but just loved doing it. The incredible thing about um, Stephanie when I saw her sort of standing in that line at that Saturday morning drama class was that you know, one moment she could look at you with these giant blue eyes and she looked like a child and um, the next moment she, she would look at you and she looked like a woman. And what it was so important for me to try and capture that moment in adolescence where you're not a child anymore but you're not a woman quite yet, you haven't tipped into adulthood and, you know, at the time when you're going through it, it feels like it lasts forever but actually when you look back on it, it you realise it's like 15 minutes in your life and we had to capture um, whoever was going to play Leanne in that in that moment um, and we did so um, it was a long process for her she came back through many many callbacks um, and eventually we, we cast her um, because she hadn't acted on screen before and she was going to carry this entire film we had to know that um, she had the, the, the talent the ability and the stamina and of course she had that in droves the first person we actually cast was um, Nathan, who plays her brother, Gavin. He was uh, wonderful. He had acted a tiny bit before, but he then came and helped me, essentially, by being the actor that all the other actors who were auditioning or young people that were auditioning read with. Um, so he was there for most of the auditions with me. He also shot the pilot with me. He acted in the pilot. Um, with me and so um, he was there throughout the whole one-year process from pilot to, to us actually going into first day of principal photography on the film and, and then you know eventually we, we cast the rest of the, the, the team, the rest of the gang that was around them just through slowly going through um, young people and sort of um, matching teams together and then rematching teams together and I do remember the morning that um, we had the, the team we were set on come in for their first day of rehearsals and because they had all auditioned with other Leannes and other Gavins, um, they didn't know who else was going to be in the room with them, who, who else had gotten the job and so I just sort of remember sitting in a circle with them and saying, okay, you're the team, you are the final 
final cast who will be making this film with me and I can sort of remember the excitement in their faces but also the fear at the same time. And then of course all the adults in the film were professional actors um, and I love that mixture, I love that dynamic that's created when you bring that kind of new kind of excited vibrant talent through young talent through um, and it kind of hits and meets kind of established particularly theatre talent you know my actors have worked a lot in theatre um, and you kind of bring those two elements together and there's a beautiful dynamic that's created uh, just worked very well in in a way of life having been an, an actress myself i think what that teaches you as a director is exactly what an actor needs um, i think of myself as quite a nurturing director and that's not because I'm a woman I, I just think that's because I've previously acted and so um, what I want to bring to my actors um, and for my actors is what I didn't necessarily get when I was a young actress I never want them to feel like they're not doing well enough for me it's not about not doing good enough or let's do that scene again because it wasn't very good it's about how can we build on what you've done and make this more complex make this more nuanced make this more interesting or tell the story better and sometimes you know oftentimes it's about doing less not doing more the, the thing about me as an actress when I was acting is I was very bad at what I did, but I was really good at spotting a good performance or some, somebody who was capable of giving a good performance. And so um, it, it's not about what they deliver in the first take, it's about what I know they have buried deep within them that I can slowly tease out of them. Um, and that's what I try to do. I try to give them a very safe environment, particularly when you're working with young actors, you know, it's playing difficult characters, um, scary in some way characters, like, like the ones in A Way of Life, is nerve-wracking for them. There's a sense you know that to really create a good performance you have to cross over you have to leave yourself and become the character that you're playing and when that character is, is, an, is an ugly personality is doing nasty things within the context of the film you can feel like as an actor you won't ever properly return to yourself like you may end up losing yourself somehow in the character you're playing and so for me it's important to be able to give them the courage to step over and become that character and to know that they'll never lose themselves they're always they'll always be able to return and find themselves so it's about safety in many ways um, and it's about building their confidence so that they have the courage um, to be able to try things you know and um, and not to be so self-conscious or self so self-aware um, that they they don't allow the character to have an authentic voice I think that's what's key when I think about all of the themes that are layered into a way of life, in, in some ways layering in that way comes to me quite naturally. Of course, A Way of Life was my first film and it was the first time that I had attempted to um, pull together so many themes and ideas in, uh, within the context of one character's journey in life. And so for me, it was about, in a way, doing it um, a draft at a, at a time. I didn't attempt to try and pull everything together in um, each draft as I went along, but to focus on different themes, different ideas with each draft. Subsequently, I've, I've dealt with um, a sort of plethora of themes and layers in the subsequent films that I've gone on to make. And each time that's exactly how I deal with them. I deal with them a draft at a time, a layer at a time. But the key thing about these themes and these ideas often is for me, one links to the other. It's very difficult for me these days to tell a story that, about race. 
that isn't, doesn't also involve class, identity and gender um, in some kind of way. And so it's, in many ways, it's not that I'm doing it on purpose, is that for me, they connect. I simply cannot disconnect them in my mind or my, my brain. It's, it's really difficult for me to think about what the overriding theme is in a way of life, because they all matter to me. One matters to me as much as the other. Um, I remember all those years ago when I was making the film and I was doing all the press interviews about it, I said, you know, everybody thinks this film is about race, but it's actually about gender and it's actually about social you know, exclusion. And I think that that's probably still true, that the overriding theme for me is social exclusion. And the reason for that is whether you're excluded because you're poor, whether you um, are treated differently because you're a woman, whether you're treated differently because of your race, when, you're, when you're, you're, your voice is, is um, silenced or you're not allowed to contribute to your everyday world because you are perceived to not be relevant within that world, it feels the same. You know, it feels the same. And so for me, exclusion ties all of the other themes together within the context of, of this story. So if I had to pick one, I'd, I'd probably say, yeah, social exclusion, definitely. I pick my stories um, with love, to be honest with you. And what I mean by that is, um, on average, it still takes about seven years to get a British movie, independent movie, off the ground. Um, so if you attach yourself to an idea, a thought that you want to make into a movie and you don't love it, you're going to have to live with that movie for so long, not just perhaps maybe the seven years that it takes you to make it, but also um, all of the time that you are actually in production and then all of the time that you have to move with that movie, promoting it afterwards. And then, it, of course, it becomes part of your legacy. You've got to be fit, to be honest with you, <laughs> to make films because, um, you know, it's often approximately eight weeks of your life where you're waking up very, very early. Um, if you're directing the film, you're probably going to sleep very, very late, even though you, you know you shouldn't. You should get to bed early so that you can have a productive day the next day. Your mind is ticking over nonstop. You know, from the day you start um, pre-production to the day you probably finish the end of, you know, till delivery, really. You, there's never a day that goes by when you are not bombarded with questions and you have to know the answers. It's no just good just saying, I don't know. So for me, you have to sort of be mentally fit and you have to be physically fit as well. So in order to have the tenacity and in order to kind of sustain the ride and also in order to sustain all of the no's that you get and the rejection that you get along the way, you've got to pick something that you love and gives you a reason, I think, to hold on to it. So for me, I pick movies um, by, by working out what um, ideas, themes, um, characters might make my heart, might move me in some way. And I always believe that if a story moves me in some way, whether it makes me laugh, whether it makes me cry, then hopefully it will move um, elements of, of the audience um, that's out there as well. So that, that's how I try to pick, L-O-V-E. I'm not good at um, being creative while involving myself in another creative process. What I mean by that is I can't watch TV and I can't watch other films and I can't read books um, whilst I'm actually filming and telling my own story. I, I'm focused on the world that I've created and the world that I've submerged my characters into. So I'm pretty tunnel visioned. Um, family doesn't really hear from me very much. I've lost friends over it because it's impossible for me to kind of 
keep up those constant connections while I'm filming, but then suddenly once I've wrapped, everybody hears from me. Um, and it, it, it's just about taking care of oneself. I, I'm, I'm also submerged in my cast um, and my crew um, in the conversations that I have to have with them because it's really important that they understand my vision so that I can create a shorthand with them, sometimes even prior to getting on set, that we're not having big, fat, long discussions you know, at eight o'clock in the morning when we've really only got till nine o'clock to shoot a scene, it's not very long. Um, so it's important that they get a sense of my vision um, prior. I do that through mood boards, um, which are then distributed to all of my heads of department, costume, makeup, production design, you know, all of those departments. Um, I prepare with music. Um, sometimes it depends, you know, um, how well I'm working with the production designer, but we, I can share music with a production designer, I can um, share music with my DP. You know, there are all sorts of ways that you can um, communicate a sense of the film that you're trying to create, not just through um, speaking, not just verbally in many ways. So I try to bring them into my creative mind and my, my creative zone as much as possible. And of course, listen to theirs as well, because the brilliant thing about collaboration is that when you're working with your heads of department, um, there are those magic moments where they take your vision, you know, five steps further than even you contemplated it could go. And those are the really wonderful moments. So taking care of self and submerging myself really in cast and, and crew and um, doing my best to communicate vision. The biggest challenge I've faced so far, I think it's equal on every film, to be honest with you, which is financing still. We're at a place where, you know, the buzzword is still diversity and we're still, um, you know, turning a corner when it comes to, to that word and kind of putting, putting actions behind the words. And so with a, a director like me, I'm, I'm, it, it's not just a look, it's not just that we look different, but we also tell our stories through a slightly different gaze. And I think the biggest challenge really is gaining funding when, um, on the face of it, people are very, very open to the idea of diversity. But what you're often faced with is an idea that you're invited to the table, but sort of still expected to speak with the same voice and the same language as those who have been privileged, who have had the sort of privilege of making films before. And of course, as, as a black female, I'm coming to it slightly differently. I'm coming to it with, with, with not just the unique vision of myself as a human being, but um, with my experience as being a black female. And sometimes getting that finance, because I see the world slightly differently um, to the world that I think financiers are used to your stock standard filmmaker telling their stories from can be difficult. So I, I still struggle and people think with each film you make it gets easier. Actually, it gets harder. It's interesting because um, I went on to win a BAFTA um, for um, my work on A Way of Life and at the time when I won it, I didn't actually know exactly what that would mean. I knew that to me personally, it was massive. It was a huge um, endorsement of my work, particularly as a woman and a black female within the industry um, who is, I mean, I mean to say thoroughly underrepresented <laughs> is, is the understatement of the century probably. Um, but and particularly on my first film, it was a sort of, it was, and the confirmation that said, you know, you, you, you did okay with this, you should, you should carry on. 
but I didn't know what it would mean within the context of the industry. What I hoped it would mean was that um, doors would be slightly more easy to open than they previously had been. They weren't. Um, and I don't think that that um, um, had anything to do with anything other than the period of time we were in and how difficult it still was at that time to tell the kind of stories that I might want to tell, um, which um, placed characters of colour or women um, within the centre of their own stories and told those stories through their gaze. I just don't think we were quite there yet at that time. With all of this time gone by, I obviously have the luxury of hindsight. And what I know for sure is that without that BAFTA, I would not have had the opportunity to go on and make my second film, Belle. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to therefore go on and make my third film, A United Kingdom, and currently my fourth film, Where Hands Touch. So the ramifications of winning the BAFTA um, kind of took a long time to kind of settle and for me to be able to tangibly decipher in many ways. Um, definitely, there were 10 years between my first film, A Way of Life, and my second film, Belle, um, and I don't think that I would have been able to ride those 10 years and then make a second film had I not won a BAFTA for my first film. So it was incredibly important um, and um, was a sort of career-making win in many ways. I always say that the advice I would give to anybody starting out today is be tenacious. It's a long road. Um, pick, a, pick projects you love because, as I've mentioned before, you know, they can take a long, long time to get off of the ground and, and the road is kind of fraught with, with rejection and, and no's. Um, I always say, remember, that no is not a full stop when it comes to um, telling the, the stories you want to tell and people embracing those stories. It's a comma. It's time for you to kind of take stock and then move forward. Find people who trust you trust in your vision to tell the story and um, you know dare to dream uh, turn those dreams into goals there's you know it, it's possible it, it, your dreams are possible in terms of the stories you want to make um, and so it's it's about belief in self it's also about working out the, the best way to communicate your stories that will also make them in many ways I think um, attractive to financiers and then the final thing that I would say is that don't wait you know the door does not open from the outside you have to get out there and as I say today there are so many ways in which we can tell our stories and there are so many platforms that we can use to tell them that you need to find like-minded people and get going, make your short film. If you only have an iPhone to do it on, do it. You know, find a festival that will screen your film, use it as a calling card, use you know, the various social media platforms as a calling card and continually hone your skills in terms of learning how to tell stories and building on how you tell stories. The more films you make, the more experienced you'll be and the more, um, the word finessed you will be you will become at telling those stories so get out there and do it